Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While the province's online booking portal does not open until mid-March, but some seniors in Guelph are already getting their COVID-19 vaccines. We'll talk with Guelph Mayor Cam Guthrie about that. The U.S. declared that Johnson & Johnson's dose is okay for dissemination. That started on Saturday. Is Canada far behind? Ontario's Greenbelt consultation is now underway, but advocates say the plans don't go far enough. We'll discuss that. And could a gummed-up parliament actually be the cause of an upcoming federal election? They're talking about it up on Parliament Hill, and we'll talk about it as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A great deal of concern about uh, the rollout of the vaccination program. Uh, the good news is the federal government is hoping to start receiving vaccine doses from AstraZeneca this week as the flood of injections that flowed into Canada from Pfizer and Moderna uh, has subsided to a certain extent. Steve Henniger has the details. Health Canada announced Friday its approval of the AstraZeneca vaccine, the third COVID-19 shot to now get Canada's green light. A senior government official told the Canadian press the first of those doses could start arriving on Wednesday. Canada is currently expecting delivery of about 445,000 vaccine doses this week, all from Pfizer-BioNTech, who have promised to deliver some 4 million doses by the end of March. We received 168,000 doses of Moderna's vaccine last week, but that company only delivers every three weeks. Steve Henniger, the Canadian Press. Well, how's the program rolling out in in your particular community? Because we've had mixed reaction here. Of course, there's some concern about what's going on in Toronto. That might just be numbers. Uh, Hamilton says they were overwhelmed with requests over the weekend about when can I get mine, when can I get mine. Uh, There's one community that seems to have their act together, though, and and seems to be going along quite well, and that is the city of Guelph. Uh, Joining us to talk about this is the mayor of the city of Guelph, uh, Cam Guthrie, joins us on the program. Mr. Mayor, thanks so much for the time. It's great to have you back on the show today. Yeah, thanks a lot for uh, letting me join you. Thank you so much. Let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, your rollout in the city of Guelph. Uh, just looking at some of the numbers here, uh, you actually started uh, with the second phase of this with uh, the the 80-year-olds uh, last week, didn't you? Yes, we did. And, uh, you know, right off the top, hey, I'm the spokesperson for the city, but I want to give all praise to our medical health uh, officer locally and the whole public health team. They've been really on top of the entire pandemic situation, we were actually one of the first cities, I think the first city, um, to institute mask wearing. And our medical uh, officer of health also didn't want to delay at all any opportunity for vaccinations to get out. So um, when it came to waiting for type of registration portals online uh, from the province, our medical officer of health said, well, we're not going to wait. We're going to create our own. And by doing that, it's enabled people to schedule themselves through our own portal and get the vaccinations into their arms earlier. Uh, so it's been really a, a, a good process here. And as I said, praise to the leaders here. Well, that's that's a key part of this, though, isn't it, Mr. Mayor? Because we've heard about even the provincial program. Like, you know, do these guys even have a, a program? Do they have a, a strategy here? And there's a lot of questions about that. But but you're not going to sit around and wait for somebody to hand it to you. You guys have been proactive on this. Yeah, and that's that's just the outlook we've had here in Guelph is just we're going to be proactive. And, uh, you know, eventually we'll probably, and I think other health units across the province will probably eventually have to merge with the provincial portal once it's up and ready but this is about when we receive vaccines we just do not want to be waiting around we need to get the those into people's arms and so the portal that was created locally uh, really enables that registration to happen uh, gets them in the system 
and then our uh, staff from public health will start calling uh, people to set up the actual time for them to arrive. And yeah, so for over a week now, we've been doing that second phase, as you said, of the 80 and older, and we're almost going to be done that pretty soon and continuing on with the next phases and the next people that are eligible for the vaccinations. How is uh, the, the, the battle against this, this virus rolled out, and how has this uh, been, been impacted within the community? I mean, as, as the mayor, of course, you hear from the public. If they don't like what's going on, if they don't like the protocol, if they don't like, the, as you say, you are one of the first uh, communities to, to, to make mandatory masking a part of, of the protocol. Uh, is there a lot of pushback, or are people essentially compliant and understanding that this is what needs to be done? I would say the latter. I would say that most people, it's kind of, I, I say this jokingly, but it, it, it really is true. There's, there's something in the DNA of Guelphites here. We, we, no matter what the issue, we just seem to really rally around each other. And uh, so we've been very compliant and uh, doing what needs to be done with either helping each other or helping businesses or helping nonprofits or whoever it is that needs help. Everyone's been stepping up and really doing what needs to be done so that we can protect ourselves, but we're always looking out for others. Yes, there is always that small handful of people that uh, don't want to comply or, or are complaining. That happens everywhere on anything in life. Uh, but for the most part, uh, it has really been, you know, Team Guelph uh, for, throughout this whole uh, pandemic. And uh, now with the light at the end of the tunnel a little bit, we're just all we're all going to celebrate together uh, once it's all kind of past us. Well, I've got family and friends up in, in your fabulous city, and I've been hearing anecdotally about this. And, uh, well, we've had bumps and, and, and some interruptions uh, here in Hamilton and in just about every other city, I guess, in Ontario from time to time. Uh, you guys seem to be steady but sure. Are you down there? People that wanted tests always got tests. Nobody seemed to be complaining about that. Uh, and now the vaccine programs, again, uh, being proactive like this and have a, a strategy that's in place so as soon as you get the shipments, you can say, okay, now here's how we're going to do it. That that probably goes a long way towards getting the population uh, to buy into this because they understand that you, that you and, of course, the, the, the public health department have their act together here. Yeah, you know, I would agree. When we, when we are showing that we are, you know, we're, we know what we're doing, uh, it starts to create credibility within the, the, the processes and the protocols that we have. And when people buy into that, credibility, uh, then they feel better about getting tested. They feel better about abiding by the public health guidelines. They feel better about getting vaccinations. And, and, and so that is an important piece, I think, throughout, throughout this whole thing, not just in Guelph, is, is communication, being uh, very forthright, transparent uh, with everything that we're doing, and making sure that we're pulling people along on this journey together to keep them informed so that, you know, there's no kind of questions lingering out there. People are very knowledgeable. They're up to speed on what's going on. And then, of course, with this vaccination portal that was created locally, uh, you know, people knew about it right away. People started being able to register. And that's why we're able to get the, the needles in the arms. So people seem pretty confident about what's happening here. And uh, you, like I say, you're a few days ahead of the curve with just about everybody else. Uh, some of us are waiting, I guess, another week or so, and, and you've already started with this. So you feel pretty confident that you guys are not just on track, but actually a, a little bit ahead of the game. Yes, I believe it, it was the middle of February, so just maybe a week and a half or two weeks ago, that Guelph was actually ahead of vaccinations, not only for the province, but nationally. So, again, that 
leadership that we have locally from our public health unit has just really translated into the logistics of how to really operationalize the vaccination administration and getting needles into the arms. And and it's just been all hands on deck because when it comes to people's health, it's it's not only about the adhering to the guidelines, but it's also about when we get those vaccines, we want them into people's arms right away. And that's that's the type of leadership that we've had here. Well, Mr. Mayor, so far so good. Congratulations to you and to your public health department and to council, because this doesn't happen without the council support, uh, to make sure that things are going well. And uh, you seem to be setting the standard, I guess, for other Canadian cities to follow. Uh, continued good luck with this, and thanks again for the time today. Oh, you as well. Take care, and thank you so much to you and your listeners. Have a good day. You too. That's uh, Guelph Mayor uh, Cam Guthrie uh, with a city that uh, seems to have a a pretty good handle on exactly what needs to be done. Uh, And and that's the key to this thing, by the way. If you show as a government that you know what you're doing and that you've got a plan, uh, it's a lot easier for the public to buy into it because it's not the case in a lot of municipalities and, uh, and provinces for that matter. And that can cause all kinds of problems, as we've seen. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. South of the border, uh, talking about success stories with the vaccination rollout, uh, things seem to be getting better on a daily basis and maybe even better than usual with the announcement that uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine uh, may be imminent. Joining us to talk about this is Jim Crisula, who is a CBS News radio correspondent. Uh, Jim, thank you as always for the time. It's great to have you on the program today. Yeah, good to hear your voice again, Bill. Hope you've been well. Uh, so far, so good. Not vaccinated yet, but, you know, we're getting there, I hope, at some sure. point or another. Uh, saw Dr. Fauci over the weekend uh, on, on, the, on the morning shows, of course, uh, talking about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, it almost seems too good to be true, Jim. I mean, not only is this going to roll out pretty soon, uh, it doesn't need to be refrigerated. It looks as if this may well be uh, the vaccine of choice. And I know Dr. Fauci said, look, no, you, you can't pick one over the other. Get what you can get right now. But uh, this is sure. this is pretty good news, isn't it? Yeah, Bill, it really is. And I think one of the keys to this, too, this new Johnson & Johnson vaccine, is the fact that it requires only one shot, one mm-hmm. inoculation, as opposed to Pfizer and Moderna, of course, which require the two shots. So, uh, again, that's a key. And, and as you mentioned, it does not need to be refrigerated. Uh, so, yes, Johnson & Johnson, in fact, saying that Americans should be able to receive its vaccine within the next 24 to 48 hours. Uh, this, of course, after U.S. regulators approved the vaccine over the weekend, making it the, the country's third available one for the coronavirus. What about uh, production, Jim? Are they going to be able to, to, to meet that those those goals that are being set right now? Yeah, they, they think so, Bill. The drug maker is saying that it expects to deliver about 4 million vaccine doses this week and 100 million doses by June. So, again, uh, of course... President Joe Biden had indicated uh, after he was elected that it was his goal to get 100 million Americans vaccinated within the first 100 days of his administration. And they are on track to accomplish that, as as amazing as it would would seem. But uh, again, a lot of excitement now, especially with with three uh, vaccines available at this point. I, I remember the day he made that announcement, and, and I know there were a lot of people rolling their eyes saying, yeah, good luck with that, Mr. Yes. President. Yes. Uh, uh, but as you say, the schedule is there, uh, and, and it's 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 getting a plan. It's what we were just talking about with our, our previous guest, and, and I know that yes. the Biden administration has, has gone a long way towards doing that. Of course, Ron Klein, as chief of staff, uh, was involved in the Obama administration when it came to, to vaccine rollouts, and uh, so was Jeff Zients, who has come on side mm-hmm. right now, too. Uh, 
people with that experience in these sorts of things must be invaluable in a situation like this. Oh, very much so. And and there, I think the last figure I saw, Bill, is they're, they're up to nearly 3 million vaccinations a day here in the States. So again, they continue to make a lot of progress on this. Dr. Fauci did say over the weekend that he's somewhat concerned that some of the states he thinks are easing these COVID-19 restrictions too soon, too quickly. He's concerned about potentially an uptick in cases once again, because uh, especially in the American South and many of the Republican governors, uh, and again, especially in the American South, but uh, but even elsewhere, let's say the Dakotas, just below obviously the Canadian border, they've been very reluctant through all of this the past year to issue mask mandates or any kind of widespread restrictions. Uh, so again, we're starting to see some of these states that did impose restrictions starting to ease some of them, and Dr. Fauci's expressed concern about that. Jim, what about the, the, the concern about the variants? Is, is that an issue down there? I know Fauci and, and others are talking about this, uh, but there's a political angle to this as well, and, and as you say, sure. it comes down to maintaining that protocol. I know California had some spikes with the variants, and they're concerned about that. Uh, is, is it something that they, they're keeping an eye on? Very much so. To this point, the, the feeling, Bill, is that these three coronavirus vaccines are effective against each of these variants they've seen so far. But obviously, these viruses continue and constantly mutate, and, and that is a big concern. Uh, one of the pharmaceutical executives was, was talking last week that he thinks perhaps uh, the people may require uh, an annual shot an annual vaccination against this much as as we see with the seasonal flu what about going forward here let's let's assume that this is the light at the end of the tunnel and we're not going to be naive enough to say that this is just going to go away and, and as as you said sure. i saw those comments from dr fauci as well that this may be a thing like a flu shot where we have to get these annually but with that in mind there i guess would have to be a discussion at some point jim about okay how are we going to maintain the the the, the work that's been done here uh you know personal protective equipment vaccination production things of this nature uh, there's going to have to be a commitment from levels of both the federal and state governments to do something about that i would think yeah very much so in fact bill you know you've seen predictions that a face mask uh, might be part of part of all of us for for some time to come the foreseeable future even with these vaccinations and uh, so again you know with 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 what's happened here so so again uh, we'll have to see how all this plays out Jim, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, enjoy listening to your segments. Of, uh, and, and uh, boy, it's a, it's such a, an important time right now. But and I'm not going to start, you know, saying, "Hey, we've turned the corner." But some pretty good news, and I know that's the sort of thing that uh, the governments and certainly the people need to hear at this time to make sure that all the things that they've been doing and the sacrifices that they've been making seem to have paid yeah. off. At least will be anyway. There's a there's a plan in place now. Yes, very much so. Thanks so much, Jim. Great talking to you. Take care yeah, and stay well. Thanks. Jim Crisulo, CBS News Radio correspondent, keeping us up to speed on what's happening south of the border uh, with the vaccination program. And, and who would have thunk it? I mean, I know there was a lot of skepticism. Uh, you know, when, when the president uh, announced that he was going to try to get uh, 100 million vaccinations in uh, the first 100 days, 
Uh, but it's happening. They're actually a little bit ahead schedule, and that's the Johnson & Johnson announcement is only going to make those numbers, I guess, that much better. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some mixed messaging for the Ford government about the environment and the green belt. You may remember that a couple of months ago now, uh, well, February, I guess it was, that they talked about uh, some modifications they were going to make uh, that, that so outraged a number of people, including uh, David Crombie, who was the chair of the Greenbelt Advisory Committee, that he resigned, and a number of other people on the committee resigned as well, thinking this government has no commitment to the Greenbelt or to environmental issues. Uh, or words to that effect. Then, of course, uh, just a few days ago, the minister announced that they were actually going to add on to the Green Belt and that, again, they were not going to touch this. Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark says his government will launch a 60-day consultation on its proposal. We want to hear directly from Ontarians about how we can best protect more environmental, groundwater, and agricultural resources from development. This consultation will lay the foundation for the largest expansion of the Green Belt since its creation in 2005. So, which uh, message do you want to believe? Uh, that's a question I think a lot of people are asking these days. Tim Gray has been following this story. Tim is the Executive Director of Environmental Defense Canada and joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Tim, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Well, thanks for having me. Do you take the government at its word now that, uh, that they've seen the light and that they understand that environmental issues are important and the Green Belt is important? Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, this government has, you know, carried out a systematic and widespread attack on environmental protection since it got elected, uh, including an effort to legislate open the green belt for development, as we've talked about before. So, mm -hmm. you know, and they've rolled back the Endangered Species Act, uh, changed all the planning rules to encourage sprawl, allowed developers into uh, protected wetlands, you know, the list goes on and on. So there's, you know, real concern about their overall record to date. Uh, that said, you know, any time that a minister announces that he wants to expand the green belt, especially in areas that are, you know, particularly valuable to have it expanded into, like the areas around uh, Paris Galt uh, on the Moraine, then obviously we want to take that seriously and take it at face value and hope that he's open to that, but also all the other areas that are uh, threatened by uh, the sprawl that they've actually unleashed. So there's a lot of other areas um, that really need to be a focus of, of attention of any growth to the to the Greenbelt. So, you know, we're really spending a lot of time talking to uh, people around Ontario who you know, are working on these issues and telling them to put forward, you know, the reasons why the, the wetlands and forests in their neighborhood shouldn't be uh, mowed down for development and add it to the green belt so we're uh, really hoping that the, the minister is going to keep his word on this well it's not just the minister i mean i guess the most elementary question is twice now doug ford has suggested you know invading the green belt for development and and that that's still out there as a matter of fact as you said those changes that they made to the planning uh, process uh, a couple of months ago now so outraged so many people that they thought you know this is this is useless so i i don't know which message to believe here i mean are they sincere about this i mean the, the areas that they've talked about uh including in the in their their new green belt are, are anything is good we get that but uh, there's there's so much more that they could be doing in my opinion yeah absolutely there's two two areas one is the paris gulf moraine and that was part of a, a bill that um uh, mpp mike schreiner put forward yeah. and has been um you know, sitting in, in the legislature now for quite a while um those areas are valuable um the other areas that were mentioned by the minister are, are urban river valleys but if you read the fine print of what they're saying they'll do there is that they're only talking about protecting the areas that are already protected so urban parks conservation authority lands but none of the lands that would be threatened by development would be included in the green belt so that's obviously um 
you know, a bit disingenuous saying you're going to protect lands that are already protected. Um, what I think is key here is whether or not the uh, province is going to be willing to consider protecting other lands that are really threatened. So areas around Hamilton, important agricultural and forest lands, for example, that are threatened by development, uh, Crothers Creek headwaters north of Pickering, um, where the developers there tried to get a, a minister's zoning order to bypass all the planning rules and, and develop that really sensitive area. Simcoe County, et cetera. So there's a lot of areas that we know that need to be protected, and I guess we're going to have to really see whether or not uh, this government has changed its stripes and is going to uh, protect these areas and add them to the Green Belt. Well, to that point, let's let's talk a little bit about the proposed highway, uh, which, by the way, is going to cut right through one of these areas that they said they are going to protect. Now, I understand uh, that in the initial Greenbelt legislation that the McGinney government brought in so many years ago, uh, they did say that there could be exceptions for, for infrastructure improvements and infrastructure construction and things of this nature. Uh, but... <laughs> And if you take that at face value, Tim, okay, we, maybe there's a, va- a valid reason for them to put the highway there. But the government and the members of this government seem to be the only ones that think that highway is even necessary. Absolutely. Um, there was an expert panel that reviewed the need for uh, Highway 413 uh, about three years ago, and they concluded that it shouldn't be built. And of course, the previous government canceled it. And I think as well, you know, when you talk about building you know, infrastructure like pipes, roads and stuff into the Greenbelt, um, you know, that was put in there because you have some towns and cities that are completely enclosed by the Greenbelt and, you know, obviously they need to be serviced. But this is completely different. Both Highway 413 and uh, the Holland Marsh Highway that they want to build, um, you know, are linking major other highways, the 400 to the 407, the 404 to the 400 right through the Greenbelt, right through particularly sensitive areas. So they're not, it's not about servicing a community. This is about pushing 400 series highways uh, through some of the most ecologically sensitive parts of the Greenbelt after people have concluded that that's not a good idea. So, um, yeah, this, it doesn't make any sense to be talking about expanding the Greenbelt when you're uh, putting, putting through a $6 billion highway through the green belt that experts have concluded uh, isn't going to help uh, address uh, congestion, is going to encourage sprawl, and is going to cross the headwaters of the Humber and the Credit uh, 85 times and, and, and destroy those watersheds. So it makes no sense, and you're right, most people are opposed to it, and increasingly uh, a lot of elected officials as well. Uh, for those who may not know, I just I, I don't want to draw the map for it, but I mean this this proposed highway essentially is going to go from the 403 uh, out near Mississauga and and, and snake around uh, all the way through Caledon and a lot of other very environmentally sensitive areas and end up on the 400 up near Nobleton. Uh, and I, I just look at it on a map, Tim, and I say, why? I mean, you know, where, show me the necessity for this. Yeah, it starts nowhere and ends nowhere. Um, yeah. You know, they're talking about being a place for uh, building transit uh, along this highway, but there is no um, urban development at either end, so it's a highway from nowhere to nowhere. Um, you know, I think it's, it's pretty clear uh, if you read um, some of the media from the development industry that, you know, the reason this is being pushed forward is that it's going to unlock all of those areas of farmland and forests to the, between Halton and Brampton and north of Brampton up into Caledon, uh, to a massive increase in sprawl. And of course, the province has changed the rules around the Planning Act and the Growth Plan to encourage more sprawl, to take us back to like a 1970s style of development. But everyone knows that when you build another four-lane highway, um, that it doesn't decrease congestion, it just helps to create it. And you create more uh, car-dependent sprawl. 
And you know, I think people are really waking up to this being a bad idea. In fact, the city of Brampton has come up with an alternative proposal um, for the section of what this highway would be in the western, you know, west of Brampton, to build uh, an urban boulevard with density along it, um, bike trails, transit, uh, housing, uh, shops, etc. So instead of having a big four-lane highway in the middle of a, a cornfield surrounded by sprawl. They're talking about actually building a, a much more robust urban form that's more sustainable, more people-friendly. So there's a real clash here between the feature that a lot of the municipalities are trying to build and what this highway represents and the destruction that it'll bring. Well, Brampton just went through a major reconstruction of Highway 410, which was supposed to be a bypass to take some of the heat off the city and, and uh, for people that are heading up north. Uh, this is uh, just going to be a, a further obstruction, I guess, for these people for years and years to come. And I, I don't see the net benefit to it in a situation like this. Uh, it, it's, you know, is it supposed to take some of the, the, the gridlock away from the 403 and the QEW? I, I'm not so sure that is going to be a situation like this. But I, 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 was, I was astounded, really, when they decided to move ahead with a project like this. And then and out of the same ministry comes this idea that we want to protect those lands. Yeah, I mean, we know that uh, from the, the congestion perspective that the expert panel determined that uh, building this highway is only going to save 30 seconds of commute time across the region um, because these highways just fill up once you build them. And uh, we also know that you know we're looking at uh, you know a starting price of about six billion dollars uh, for this highway before expropriate land expropriation costs are built in. Um, you know we looked into this uh, with some of our partners about what you could buy in terms of uh, public transit enhancements with that kind of money. And I mean you're basically choosing between a highway like this and things like all day go service between uh, major cities that would be serviced on this line, extension of go service to Bolton, which is in the area which would take cars off the road, you know completing LRTs within <clears throat> places like Brampton. So you know you really have to choose. There's only so much money to go around. and you know are we looking to build out um, you know the rest of southern Ontario to look like the sprawl that we built since the Second World War? Or are we going to realize that Southern Ontario is much more like um, Europe than it is the rest of uh, Canada and that we only have so much farmland and natural areas and that this kind of sprawl is completely unsustainable and um, it destroys productivity and, and ruins people's quality of life. So we have to make a choice. And, you know, this government so far has really said, well, our choice is that we're doing sprawl and, um, you know, we're not doing this uh, more modern approach to urban planning, which is really unfortunate and um I think needs to be resisted by the people of Ontario. And I understand that is a growth area. And I mean, you know, we, we talked about the people that are gravitating from the GTA over to Hamilton and down through Niagara. And as a matter of fact, real estate experts tell us it's going all the way down the 401 to London now, where people are simply saying, i got to get out of the GTA. And and places like Caledon, Caledon East, and, and Nobleton and places like that uh, have been places where people will gravitate to. But it's only going to work, as, as you and I know, if, if there's public transit as an alternative for people. Not everybody wants to get in the car and drive back into the GTA if that's where their job is. Yeah, and a lot of people reason that they're you know, deciding to move to places like Hamilton or, you know, as you say, down the 401 is because of things like gridlock. And uh, we know, I mean, the, the data is, is very clear um, from many places here in Ontario, but also in the United States and other parts of the world, that building more highways just increases the amount of gridlock. So you're right, we need to move to having more investment in public transit to move people off the roads. Um, we also know that the 407, because it's uh, privately owned and the toll rates are so high, 
it's very runs very close to where this uh, Highway 413 would go. We know that we could put trucks on there. It would be much, much cheaper to, to work with the owners of that, which we actually own that highway now because it's owned by the Canada Pension Investment Board. So yeah. The Canadian public actually owns the 407. It would be much cheaper to put those trucks there and uh, reduce the, the uh, amount of trucks that are on existing roads, and that would be part of the solution as well as transit. Uh, so there are alternatives in situations like this, and, and, and that's why I'm wondering just how you know, aggressive they're going to be in trying to go through with this, although it seems as if that's exactly what they want to do. Uh, but what about the long-term commitment to, to environmental issues and, and to wetlands and, and things of this nature? And I know that some of those are going to be impacted, by the way, if that highway does go through, some of the areas that you and I just talked about. Uh, but is, is this a, an about-face by, by the minister here to say, okay, we are going to be more aggressive about protecting some of these and, and, and holding people's feet to the fire? I mean, I, I understand there's, there are people with a lot of money, uh, developers that want to influence this government. And, and by the way, I connect those dots for you, too. I know you know about this, Tim. I mean, they just proposed the other day that you can also, uh, as a, the next election, uh, you'll be able to double the amount of money that you can uh, donate to political parties. Uh, I'm sure those two issues are not tied together here, but I'm a skeptic, and, and I wonder about situations like this. Uh, are they being influenced, are their policies being influenced too much by the people that can open their wallets and say, how would you like to get reelected? Yeah, for sure. The changes to policy around planning and environmental protection in uh, in you know, the last two years since this government elected have been very closely tied to the the demands of the development industry. And you know, you, you don't have to be like paranoid. All you have to do is look at the uh, requests that are on that are on paper from organizations like the Ontario Home Builders Association, etc. Uh, to see that the things that they've demanded for several years have in fact been implemented. So. Um, you know, and I think you know, there's lots of room for um, people to make money in the development industry in, in southern Ontario without um, going backwards to the 1970s in terms of the kind of uh, cities that we build. Um, there's huge opportunities for building housing within urban boundaries. You think of a place like Hamilton, for example. There's thousands of acres of, of land within the city of Hamilton that uh, really could have more people and more businesses in it. Uh, it's really a choice of where we want to focus our development. Do we want to um, build uh, functional, sustainable urban cores connected by uh, public transit between cities and, and effective transit within them? Or do we want to perpetuate this uh, model of sprawl that started after the Second World War, which is completely car dependent and uh, very, very difficult to be make it walkable or cyclable? Uh, everyone has to drive everywhere. So... That's kind of the choice, and uh, this government has, uh, you know, worked with the development industry that makes most of its money uh, from building single-family homes, uh, large single-family homes on farmland, and uh, so they've aligned their policy around planning and environmental protection to encourage that. But there are huge consequences for agriculture, for water supply, for climate change, for sustainability, for livability, and for prosperity of, of choosing that model, and uh, I think it's a mistake. You talked about farmland, and that's got to be a key part of this discussion as well, though, Tim. I mean, you know, we, we do not have an infinite amount of of, of, cro of areas to grow crops, and uh, there's a move afoot. I, I think everybody's aware of it right now to buy local as much as possible, especially during the pandemic. We've talked more about that, uh, and it, there's a cost factor involved in this too. I mean, let's face it: if you're going to buy your tomatoes from Mexico, you're also paying for the transportation from Mexico to here. So there's there's that element to it too. But if we start to decrease the amount of farmland, we're we're really fighting against ourselves, aren't we? 
We are. There's a real food security issue as well. You know, with uh, I think people are more aware of that with the pandemic, um, you know, breakdown in transportation systems. Some of these problems are only going to get worse because of climate change. We uh, really should not be uh, relying solely on importation of food from places like California or South America in order to feed ourselves. We have very, very high quality farmland uh, in Southern Ontario, some of the best in the world, uh, really great growing conditions. Um, it's also a huge business. I mean, the agricultural sector in Southern Ontario is a massive employer and a, a mass, massive wealth generator. And uh, the uh, you know, organizations like the Ontario Federation of Agriculture are very concerned about changes to uh, the planning rules that are allowing uh, cities to, or requiring actually cities to massively expand their boundaries out onto farmland. So it's it's a, a huge long-term risk that we're creating by making ourselves more and more dependent on the importation of, of food at, at a very time when it's going to become more and more difficult to be assured of being able to have that food arrive here. Well, and there's so, much, so many, you know, related issues to this as well. There's there's that element of it, obviously. Uh, and, and, well, I can tell you that Hamilton, and this goes all the way back when I was on city council, uh, the agri-food business is over a billion dollars annually, and that's just in the Hamilton area. And I'm, I'm sure that number is larger uh, since I was on council about 15 years ago. Uh, so there's that element. You're right. There's an economic development side to this as well, and plus the impact it has on watersheds. And, of course, you know, the more concrete there is, the water, the rain doesn't get absorbed, which causes more flooding in the residential areas, uh, and on and on it goes. I'm, I'm just hoping that if the minister is sincere about not just hearing but listening to what people have to say, that those sorts of things are going to influence uh, the decisions they make going forward. Yeah, I really hope so. I really hope that uh, we're seeing a, a turning of direction from this government and that they are going to listen to people's uh, desire to expand the green belt. And I really hope that they uh, make a change and, and decide to roll back some of these really draconian attacks they've made on endangered species and planning rules and wetlands and conservation authorities. I mean, as I mentioned at the beginning, the list is very long. They, uh, they have a lot of work to do to, to rebuild the, the damage that they've been doing to uh, Ontario's environmental protection rules. Absolutely. Tim, uh, thank you again for the time today. Uh, stay in the good fight here, and uh, we'll talk about more of this, I'm sure, as uh, this uh, unfolds in the next little while. Take care. Thanks so much, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Tim Gray, of course, is the uh, Executive Director for the Environmental Defense Canada, uh, concerned about uh, the Ontario government's uh, embracement. I use that in advisedly of uh, the Green Belt. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. For the last three or four weeks, there has been rumors running around Parliament Hill that we could be in for a spring election. And uh, those numbers uh, and those rumors were, were, well, diminished a certain amount anyway. Uh, a couple of days ago, when NDP leader Jagmeet Singh says that he will not trigger an election as long as the COVID-19 pandemic persists. He says his party's priority is dealing with COVID and helping Canadians deal with it, not going to the polls. We will not trigger an election. We will vote uh, to keep the government going so that our priority remains keeping uh, people top of mind, getting vaccinated, getting the vaccine, fighting this pandemic. That's got to be the priority. So we thought that might have been the end of the argument, but uh, now there's a, a, another set of, of rumors running around right now that, uh, well, the fact that the the Conservatives especially, and, and to block to a certain extent, are blocking just about any government legislation that uh, the Trudeau government is trying to put through, that out of frustration, uh, they may simply say, to heck with this, uh, dissolve Parliament, and we're going to go, we need a mandate to do something like this. Not so sure if they've... they've they're actually uh, going to do that, but I mean, it's out there and it's an option that's open to them. So is it happening and are we 
I guess, heading towards an election. I want to bring Laura Babcock into the conversation, president of Power Group. Laura, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Before I get into that, i got to delve into something else here, too, because I know that you're a big fan. You're glued to the TV Sunday mornings for the uh, the politics shows on, on all the networks, of course. Uh, the prime minister was on Meet the Press yesterday with Chuck Todd. Uh, basically, I guess the reason they brought him on was to account for how crappy our, our vaccine rollout program is. But they talked about a number of other things, too, including Saudi Arabia. Uh, first and foremost, with your expertise with Power Group, how would you rate his performance on, on national TV yesterday? It wasn't too bad. I mean, to your earlier uh, opening statement, I very much thought he was sending out an election salvo when he used the language that we heard so often in the 2019 election around, uh, you know, for things are difficult for the middle class and those working hard to join them. As soon as I heard that, I perked up with my coffee bill on Sunday morning and I was like, wait, wait, wait a second. I've heard that line a lot. Uh, so, I mean, he was very deliberative. Uh, he had um, some important messages he had to send. It did look bad for Canada. I mean, watching the Biden administration and getting everything lined up, their vaccinations are well outpacing ours. And so it doesn't look great for Trudeau from that front. But I thought that overall, he came across, you know, um, good demeanor. I mean, this is what he's pretty good at is when he focuses and he has fewer ums and ahs and, and he understood the tone that he was trying to set. There was nothing about his performance that was overly impressive or particularly surprising. I think it was more about establishing the working relationship with um, with the Biden administration. And, of course, the takeaway for Americans was when he put in the critique about the Trump administration. But overall, I think it was just about establishing a professional working relationship with the U.S. and trying to reset things, trying to reset that relationship. I thought he stumbled just a little bit. He seemed to be caught off guard anyway when Chuck Todd asked him if uh, uh, Saudi Arabia was an ally of Canada. Well, I mean, that's really tough, right? Because we're just hearing about um, Trump and Khashoggi, and you're, there's a lot of pressure coming out of the U.S. now about um, penalizing Saudi Arabia for that. And we've seen people saying, how is it that Canada can be in any kind of relationship? But there were also U.S. senators who came on afterwards and said that Saudi is an ally of theirs. So, I mean, it's a very complex situation. But, yeah, that wasn't he should have been more prepared for that, especially after what came out uh, around Trump's comments about Khashoggi, you know, back, I guess, about a year ago. Well, sure. And then, of course, the re finally they released the security report about Khashoggi. So you had to know that was going to be front of mind. So anyway, the answer yeah, wasn't bad. It's just, yeah, it just seemed to stumble a little bit. Uh, let's get back to what he's doing on this side of the border, though. Uh, you know, we, we had the assurances from Jagmeet Singh uh, that the NDP will continue to support the government. That's essentially what he said. Uh, he's not going to force an election. Uh, is the government getting to the point of frustration right now where they're going to say to hell with this and, and we're, we're going to do this anyway? Everything comes down to vaccination schedules. In my opinion, everything does. I mean, the, the Trudeau government got the least amount of the popular vote of any governing party ever in a minority situation, right? They, they less than 35%. Uh, so they are, while they are, you know, leading the government, they're, they were in pretty weak footing coming out of the last election. Canadians really gave them a hard smack on the hand for all the SNC-Lavalin and the blackface and everything else that was going on at the time. Trudeau went uh, all the way across it in terms of the early management of the pandemic. His ratings were up really, really high. They were very, very popular. And then we started to see the stall of these vaccines coming in. And we started to see, the, yeah, as I mentioned, the Biden administration making Canada start to look bad. Like, How is it, Bill, in a country of, what, 35 million people uh, with a lot of money and who apparently had secured more doses per capita than anyone else at the start of the pandemic, how is it that we are still in a position 
where we don't even know in a major province like ours when we're going to be getting vaccinated, when we're going to really be able to reopen up businesses. How are we in a position where our government is not saying we will have this done by this point? I know that Trudeau has put out for a long time that September is the target, and I think that they are setting that expectation, so hopefully they can beat it, and then at that point they can trigger an election They can because then Jagmeet Singh's concerns will be you know, uh, mitigated about the pandemic being priority because the vaccination will be at least if not everyone at a sort of at a critical mass that will stop the transmission um, to a certain degree. So, I mean, I think he, it's all about that. If Trudeau goes now, when we're still looking bad on terms in terms of our vaccine delivery and our actual vaccination schedules, then I think he will be rightly criticized for that vis-a-vis everybody else who seems to be doing it better than us. As soon as those doses come in and if they are able to accelerate and, you know, the expectation game is everything in politics, Bill. They set the expectation for September. If they can beat it, uh, then I think they will trigger the election because why wouldn't they? They'd probably have a very good shot at winning it. I mean, what has the Conservatives really offered as an alternative? They've offered a lot of stunts, but I don't think that O'Toole is particularly looking like a serious leader option. He had a good moment around the vote around China that we discussed last week. But then, you know, shortly after, a viral video about him mm-hmm. making a porty potty joke about Trudeau went around and, and once again made him look a little bit foolish. So I think Trudeau could win a majority if he can get the vaccinations right. But what about strategy? From a political strategy standpoint, uh, you know, I, I agree with you totally. I mean, the Prime Minister's uh, projection that maybe by the end of September we're, we're going to be okay here uh, is, is a safe bet, I guess, a relatively safe bet. But uh, you counter that with what President Biden did when he boldly said 100 million vaccinations in the next 100 days, and he's actually ahead of schedule on that. Uh, it, it, it makes our small c conservative estimates uh that that much worse that hey we're we're just kind of plodding along and these guys are going you know at lightning speed to try to catch up it looks ridiculous i mean why don't we have do you remember when i think it was i want to say the swine flu i forget which one it was but there were lions huge uh, downtown toronto i remember seeing on the news and certainly uh we thought we learned out of sars you know just how important it is to address these kind of things what why don't we have 24 7 vaccinations available why aren't pharmacies providing them uh, now that we've got variants or uh, varieties of vaccine that don't require that deep refrigeration i mean why are we not putting everything on deck for this this should be a full out all hands on deck kind of effort and why can't we do it we have so much of a smaller population we apparently have these vaccines down the pipeline these big deliveries are coming so the excuses have to be gone i mean there are other provinces that already have places where you can predict your vaccination schedule and you can sort of plan your life. We just heard, I think, this morning that I think it was UConn is now offering it to 18-year-olds and they're booked up for the next two weeks because obviously a smaller population. But I'm just saying, even in Ontario, I think there is criticism to be made about the fact that we're not using all of our possible tools to get ready for these doses when they come. I mean, wouldn't you go out at two in the morning to wait (laughs) to get this thing over with? So, you know, we have to rev up our ambition around this. That's what you're talking about. Biden showed ambition and clarity. We're not getting either here in Canada or provincially. And I understand part of the motivation for President Biden. I mean, he saw that essentially the, the Trump team had no plan at all, and, and they were just wallowing in their own miseries. And, and as a result, Americans were suffering. And, and you know, when's this going to happen? So he had to contrast that, and he's done it very well. I mentioned uh, in an earlier segment, I mean, you know, Ron Klein, who's his, uh, his, his uh, chief of staff, of course, he was in charge of the Ebola thing with the Obama administration. So these guys been there, done that. They've got that kind of professional experience to be able to do this. Uh, I understand that these things are 
are relatively new, but at the same time, as you say, I'm not so sure that we're using everything in the toolbox here. Alberta announced over the weekend that they were going to start dispensing this into pharmacies too. What are we waiting for? Well, here's the thing is that, I, I, you know, we've been watching a blame game going on. You mentioned long-term care, and I know your next guest and you will discuss this. But even on the long-term care, there was a point where Trudeau had offered to bring in the military like happened in Quebec to help with the situation. And it, there was, that didn't happen in Ontario. I mean, there's this back and forth. We've got a, Ontario often votes for a different party, maybe as a counterbalance to whoever the prime minister is. But that counterbalance, that back and forth, that blame shifting about the vaccines, well, we would give them to you, but we don't have them yet, and back and forth, that's not helping anyone. And I think that as we watch the U.S. open, I mean, if the prime minister and the premier of Ontario really care care about the economy, and Ontario is still the economic engine of this country, why is it that we are not putting everything we can to get ourselves safely opened as fast as we can? I I don't want to hear about any other priorities. I don't want to hear about Doug Ford talking about campaign donation strata or carp fishing. I want to hear how soon are we going to get the vaccines in whose arms when so that businesses can safely plan when they can open up so they can start to rehire, so they can start to ramp up, so they can start to get their inventory. Tories ready. I mean, why aren't we being given this kind of clarity and this kind of ability, predictability? Uh, I don't expect them to get us all vaccinated in a month. It's a big population. But by the numbers coming in of vaccines now, I don't think there's any excuses why we have to wait what looks like longer than our partners down to the south. I mean, you remember seeing those maps where it looked like south of the border, everything was red and we were doing pretty great up here. Well, if they're able to switch themselves to green zones because they've gotten vaccinated and we're still sitting up here in our different color zones, not sure if we can open our businesses or not, we're going to seriously lose a competitive advantage. So I'm sick of the excuses and other things that they're focusing on. They need to get this economy open safely so that we can truly get to a place where we can tackle some other major issues and it's not just south of the border i mean there are other provinces that are ahead of ontario in in their dissemination of the of these vaccines too and and people are questioning you know where's our plan and i'm not so sure that we got answers well exactly i mean and this is one of those situations where people can listen to you and i and say you know we're critics or whatever whatever party but at the end of the day this is a situation where you can actually compare apples to apples You can actually look at what other provinces are doing. You can look at what other countries are doing. This has been one of those rare problems that the world shared at the exact same moment, right? And how we all responded and what we all did and our our domestic capacities for production and our relationships and our procurement processes and all of those things are on stark display. And federally, we realize we need to get better domestic production and, and, uh, and funding for these things. But provincially, we're able to say, wait, hold on. How is it that this province handled it so much better? How does this province have an online portal that's up and running? And all we're getting is press releases about, oh, you know, what's coming? I mean, uh, this is Ontario, for goodness sake, right? We should have the resources to be able to get ahead of it. So if you're not if you're not using your resources and you're not being strategic and you're not communicating effectively and clearly expectations, then it becomes a leadership issue. It becomes the fact that it looks as though the Ford government was ill-equipped and is continually not learning about how to handle this crisis. 
I got to back up just a little bit. I want to go back to uh, Trudeau on Meet the Press the other day with Chuck Todd, yesterday, I guess it was. Uh, they did ask him about the Chinese situation. And of course, this is uh, as a result of Biden's comments over the, you know, during their first meeting here that, uh, that he's, you know, he's going to do what he can to try to get the two Michaels released. But the prime minister told Chuck Todd, he says, yeah, but we are not going to be pressured uh, into releasing a uh, Meng Wanzhou uh, as, as a result of this. Uh, it sounded to me, Laura, as if the prime minister's taking one of the cards that he's got to play here off the table. Well, you know what, the, the situation though has changed. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but part of the case that was being made was that Trump had, uh, had made comments that holding her was part of some China-U.S. negotiation, which, you know, did not stand up against Trudeau just saying that they were Canada's a country of law and order and was following its treaty obligations, right? So her argument has been weakened for release. They'll fight that out in the courts. But I think what's been clear is that since the bilateral meeting between Trudeau and Biden, the conversation around this has changed. I mean, Biden said he would support the release of the two Michaels, and then Biden went right out and said their names and said China cannot use humans as bargaining chips. So obviously Trudeau has come out with a strategy with Biden on how to move this forward, right, and and how to still respect what the U.S. needs and wants in the situation. So I think what we're hearing is is not so much giving up a bargaining chip as them having a different strategy now. Uh, the other element to this, too, as you and I have talked about in the past, too, uh, even if she were released or even if the charges were dropped, whatever the case might be, uh, there's no assurance that the two Michaels are, you know, leave that, that, that day or even that month. We have no idea uh, just how the Chinese government rolls on this. Well, I think that China has always tried to position it as the two sort of not being directly tied. Uh, you know what I mean? Because that would, you know, that, that doesn't help the argument that she was unjustly, <laughs> you know, kept in, in Canada. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's a complex situation. I don't think there's going to be a, a magic moment where every, all of this is going to be resolved. Um, and I do think that, um, you know, there are Canadian spokespeople for Huawei need to get better. They, they're sort of fumbling their interviews and their positionings on this. So, I mean, it's a messy situation, Bill, but I do think that we saw the ball really move down the field when Biden made a point uh, of, of, you know, calling out China for these two specific gentlemen and the need to get them released. Laura Babcock uh, from Power Group. Always a pleasure, Laura. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks, Bill. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.